Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Roman Emperor Hadrian and his lover Antinous. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include extensive conversations about relationships between adults and adolescents. We'll also be mentioning slavery. There'll be discussions of death by drowning and by suicide, discussions of human sacrifice, and we'll also be discussing historic and more recent homophobia and modern day racism. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. Hadrian was the Roman Emperor from the year 117 CE to the year 138 CE, which makes this episode a part of our series on Roman Emperors. If you're interested in catching up on the series, we started off with a general episode on male sexuality in ancient Rome, and we've also done episodes looking specifically at Julius Caesar and the Emperor Nero. To be clear, by skipping from Nero to Hadrian and not covering any of the emperors in between, that's not us implicitly saying that we think that all those emperors were just cis straight men. We're just picking out the emperors that we think will lead to particularly interesting discussions about queerness and queer history. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want to get like 12 messages that are like, what do you mean Trajan wasn't interested in men? Because like Trajan's going to be in this episode. He's going to be interested in men. But we're not going to do a whole episode on Trajan. So in terms of our lit review, we have two main ancient sources for Hadrian's life and by extension for Antinous. The first is Cassius Dio, who was a Roman senator and historian who was born after Hadrian died. Unfortunately, his work on Hadrian survives only in excerpts and summaries in other works, so it's a bit patchy. Our second source is the Historia Augusta, which was a collection of biographies of Roman emperors written at the end of the 4th century, but probably based on a work written in the 3rd century, so still over 100 years after Hadrian's death. Some facts in the later biographies in this series are contradicted in other works, which obviously calls into question the facts in the earlier biographies in the series, including Hadrian's. So both those sources have their issues, but they're the main ones we're working with. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) We love ancient history. (laughs) (laughs) Look, 100 years isn't too bad, I guess, as far as ancient history sources go. Like, you're right, but also, like... It's not exactly good. Yeah. I feel like I could write a completely objectively true and authoritative historical work on what happened in 1920. And you don't have access to the internet? Yeah, 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 totes. There's no issue here. Yeah. (laughs) It's exactly the same as what's happening right now with the plague and all. Yeah, so I could write about that and it would in no way like express the political situation that I'm currently in and my feelings about the 1920s and then if we put that through like a dishwasher or something like that and <laughs> someone found the scraps of it, it would be totally fine. <laughs> well, that's what we're about to talk about today. Yay. <laughs> I said dishwasher when I obviously meant like washing machine. <laughs> yeah. It's much harder to leave a book in a dishwasher by accident, I feel. How are you leaving a book in a washing machine by accident? I have that pair of pants that I can fit the Lord of the Rings in the pocket of. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway, because of our sources having been through that experience. Everything's pretty conjectural. So moving on to modern sources, 
I've relied quite a lot on the work of Royston Lambert, who wrote a book called Beloved on God in 1984. So that's a combined biography of Hadrian and Antinous. And he's done a lot of work trying to reconstruct specifically Antinous's biography, which we know very little about, and also tie that into Hadrian's biography and figure out when they might have crossed paths and so forth. So if that's a shared biography of Hadrian and Antinous, is one of them the beloved and one of them the god, or is Antinous both and Hadrian just doesn't get a shout-out in the title of his book? Or Yeah, I'm afraid Antinous is both beloved and god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Hadrian's just kind of here. I'm here too. I mean, he's a Roman emperor. He's had enough attention. He'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, like, you know, I have heard of Hadrian. Have you heard of Antinous? No. Oh, okay. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely didn't know what the answer would be. Well, Antinous didn't build a wall, did he, the schmuck? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I don't know that I fully even knew that Hadrian was Roman for most of my life, to be honest. Is that because the wall's in England? Yeah. I was just like, oh yeah, Hadrian's wall. That's a thing that that happened at some point in English history. And then eventually it was like, oh wait, that's a really old wall. That was a Roman guy. Yeah. Not like Stonehenge old, though. Right? No, no, no. Stonehenge is much older than Hadrian. Yeah, yeah. So it goes Stonehenge, Hadrian, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. That's <laughs> correct, you know. There, there are some gaps, but that's that's correct. So, starting with Hadrian. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hadrian was born, Publius Aelius Hadrianus, in Rome on the 24th of January in the year 76. It's so wild when we have people's birthdays from that long ago. Like, the facts of his life are fully up to conjecture, but he was definitely born on January 24th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When Hadrian was about 10, his father, who was a Roman senator, died, and Hadrian became the ward of two men, one of whom was his father's cousin, the future emperor Trajan. Trajan's political star was rising at the time, and in the year 97, the year Hadrian turned 20, Trajan was adopted by the then emperor Nerva as his heir. Trajan's an adult man at this point, right? Trajan acted as Hadrian's guardian after Hadrian's dad died when Hadrian was a kid. Yeah, So yeah, Trajan's yeah. an adult. Yeah, yeah. cool. No, that, that makes sense. I was briefly confused about... Nerva? Yeah. Adopting Trajan, an adult man. But, like, I understand that you mean, like, naming him as an heir. Yeah. So, in a Roman context, for, like, political reasons and that kind of thing, it's much more normal to legally adopt an adult. Okay. As your legal son, for example, your legal daughter. That's interesting. Yeah. So, that happens quite a lot throughout this episode. We'll see Hadrian get adopted later on, too, and it's not uncommon at all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's interesting, because it's not something you really hear about with, like, like later monarchies yeah. as much, I feel. Yeah, I think when we look at, like, later European monarchies, you're more likely to just see them kind of finding more and more distant relatives who are technically the next in line, mm. whereas in a Roman context, you're more likely to see them picking out usually, you know, some kind of relative or aristocrat or elite person and choosing them as their heir, not because of that direct you are the next in line based on being the son of so-and-so. I assume that's partly to do with the fact where they're still pretending that they don't have a monarchy effectively. Yeah, that is a a factor. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also a factor that there's a lot of, you know, fighting over power and you're likely to be killed if you're the heir. So you're going to wait a while, wait till someone's grown up and then adopt them as the heir closer to your death. So they're less likely to be killed. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. The year after he adopted Trajan, in the year 98, Nerva died and Trajan succeeded him as the emperor. Over the next decades, Hadrian and Trajan worked closely together politically and militarily. They fought together in various wars in the east of the empire, and Trajan gave Hadrian various favours, ranging from military commands to a diamond gifted to him by Nerva. 
<laughs> just, just a big diamond. Hey, kid, want this cool rock? <laughs> <laughs> In the year 100, Hadrian married Trajan's great-niece, Vibia Sabina. The marriage appears to have been a purely political one and also a very unhappy one. Sabina reportedly said she endeavoured to never conceive a child by Hadrian in order to protect the human race. Well, Hadrian... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hang on a minute. Wow. <laughs> what happened there? Apparently he treated her very, very badly. For he, why? Because he was... A bad man? A bad man, and also he just had no interest in this relationship, and he didn't like her. So does he, like, neglect her, or is he actively hostile towards her? I can't remember which ancient source it's from, I'm afraid, but the quote that is generally brought up is there's a quote that says he treated her like a slave. Okay. He also said that he would divorce her if he was a private citizen. So well, that's after rude. he became emperor. Yeah, and he was, like, just very insulting to her. Okay. Generally pretty awful. Is he like this to, like, other people in his life? Um, like, is he just a, a bad man? <laughs> in his later life, he definitely was, like, quite paranoid and quite... Awful to the people close to him. Not so much in his early life that I'm aware of, except Sabina, but obviously we don't know everything that he did, and he may well have been. Okay. Well, I feel bad for Sabina. Yeah. I feel bad for Sabina, too. I don't think Hadrian's a nice guy. I don't be ready to, like, feel fond of him. Good. I was not preparing that emotion. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. He's a Roman emperor. <laughs> yeah. So the Historia Augusta tells us that Hadrian became a favourite of Trajan. The Latin word used in this sentence is amor, which we generally translate as love and which can refer to love in most English senses of the word, but also refers to lust. So this is the way that Historia Augusta refers to Trajan's feelings towards Hadrian. Okay, cool. So we can either read this sentence as Trajan loved Hadrian in a platonic sense or in a sexual sense. The second meaning is often read here, especially since we have reference in other sources to Trajan being attracted to men. And the passage from the Historia also continues on this theme, telling us that there was some tension between Hadrian and Trajan owing to complaints about Hadrian from the guardians of, quote, certain boys who Trajan loved ardently. So the implication there is that there were young boys who Trajan was sexually interested in or involved with that Hadrian was also making advances towards. Okay. Later in the Historia, we also hear about rumours that, quote, Hadrian had corrupted Trajan's freedmen, had cultivated his boy favourites, and had often had sexual relations with them. So I want to make some comments about Roman sexuality here before we continue. Relationships like the ones it suggested both Hadrian and Trajan were having with these boys and freedmen fit generally within what we expect of Roman sexuality and what we know of Roman sexual mores for men, specifically for Roman citizens. So as we've discussed more in depth in our episode on Roman male sexuality, and as we recap every time we talk about Roman sexuality, <laughs> broadly speaking, most sexual acts and partnerships were socially acceptable for adult Roman men, so long as they were playing what is often called the active role. So that is so long as they were penetrating rather than being penetrated in the sexual act. Obviously, that's a very reductive understanding of sex, but broadly speaking, that was the Roman understanding. And since Hadrian would have been the older partner in these relationships with these boys or freedmen, as would Trajan in a similar context, Hadrian and Trajan were assumed to be the active partners in these relationships. Romans did have concerns, however, if the person playing the passive role was also a Roman citizen, which explains why the guardians of these boys who, to quote again, Trajan loved ardently, 
why those guardians had concerns about Hadrian's actions towards those boys. On that note, if Hadrian and Trajan were in a sexual relationship, or if Trajan was sexually interested in Hadrian, as the historian might be saying, this would have also placed Hadrian in a potentially passive role in that relationship. Surprisingly, we don't really hear much further negative comment about that occurring, which is an argument to suggest that's not the interpretation we should be reading from that statement about Hadrian being Trajan's favourite. So you say that's not mentioned much more. I assume that's by, like, the primary sources. Do secondary sources sort of discuss this or, like, modern sources discuss this overly much? Do they have opinions about it? I know, like, a lot of stuff gets said about Roman emperors' sexual doings. Like, it definitely comes up in the statements will just be like, Hadrian might have been in a relationship with Trajan or, you know, it's said that Trajan was interested in Hadrian. I don't think people go into it super in-depth that I've seen and really analyzed that much further. You know, there might be an author that's done it, but I haven't come across it. It's mostly just acknowledging that that sentence is there and there's one way to read it. So despite Trajan's role as Hadrian's guardian, it wasn't until Trajan was on his deathbed in the year 117, when Hadrian was now 41, that Trajan formally adopted Hadrian as his heir. As I've said before, there's possible reasons for that, including that he may have wanted to protect Hadrian from the political or even physical attacks that being seen as the emperor's heir could have led to. It's also possible that that tension over those boys or freedmen could have caused some issues in their relationship that were resolved by the time Trajan died. We really don't know. Or like, you know, maybe Trajan was holding out hope for a better heir. (laughs) And then he was like, well, it's Hadrian or nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So Trajan's adoption of Hadrian was viewed with suspicion at the time. Cassius Dio outright tells us that the adoption letters were signed after Trajan's death by his wife Platina rather than by Trajan himself. Platina was apparently very close with Hadrian. Cassius Dio says she was in love with him and she's often credited with helping him in his political rise. The Historia Augusta similarly recounts a rumour that Platina smuggled someone else into Trajan's room after his death to impersonate him and (laughs) announce the adoption. (laughs) That's very funny to picture. (laughs) Like, how would that possibly work? Yeah. I feel like this is a much lesser version of the sacred band of Thebes problem. Like, read one sentence, sounds good. Think about it for ten seconds. Like, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) How would that be? Just wrapping up in a lot of blankets and having to be like, I adopt Adrian. Like, forging a signature, that makes sense. Yeah. That's doable. So, in the year 117, Hadrian became Emperor of Rome. Despite the rumours around the potential issues with the adoption, there wasn't a huge amount of opposition to his becoming Emperor. At the time, as Eli hinted at before, Rome hadn't actually been an empire for all that long in the scheme of things, only a bit over 100 years. And they were still, to a large degree, pretending to be a republic and Therefore, for example, the appointment of emperor had to be approved by the Senate rather than just being something where the son, whether adopted or not, of the current emperor when he died became the emperor. So Hadrian became emperor at the time when the Roman Empire was at its greatest size, stretching from Britain to North Africa and from modern-day Iran across to modern-day Portugal. So Hadrian generally focused on strengthening rather than expanding the empire's borders. Don't think that lets you off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) He's generally, when people are speaking very broadly about his reign, 
been characterized as being a peaceful emperor for this reason. Peaceful emperor is an anachronistic term. Yeah. That's my point of view. Look, that's a fair point of view, and there are several things he did which obviously were not peaceful. He fought wars in Britain, and he also very harshly put down the Bar Kokhba revolt in Judea, which was a Jewish revolt against the empire. Two things. This is my podcast now. (laughs) Um, Isn't the deal as well, like, in Britain that, like, they just sort of give up and they can't push it any further? Yeah. And then the wall gets built and they just, like, leave it at that. It's not out of any, like, desire to sort of leave it at that from the part of the Romans. Yeah, yeah. So Hadrian's Wall, which is obviously what Hadrian is most famous for, which is in the north of England, isn't like... Hadrian fought wars and he advanced to that point and he was like, yep, we'll build this wall and it'll be really good. It was kind of like, oh no, things are going really badly. I think we better just build a wall and get out of here. Yeah. So like if they had had the ability to, they would have continued to invade further north into Scotland and so forth, which obviously leads to like the enslavement of thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Speaking of the enslavement of thousands and thousands of people, the Bar Kokhba revolt, as you say, I think it's just sort of worth focusing on that for a minute because we're recording this a couple of weeks after Tisha B'Av, which is one of the Jewish holidays, which is a day of mourning for various events in Jewish history, including the two destructions of the temple and also for like the massacres that happened when Hadrian Mm -hmm. put down the Bar Kokhba revolt. So like this is very much something that is still felt to have lasting impact to today and you know, Jews today still fast in mourning over what Hadrian did, basically. Also like this had really, really intense repercussions for the Jewish people at the time. I went to a lecture once where the rabbi talking about this referred to that as the start of the modern diaspora. Yeah, and I think that's something, like, more generally worth keeping in mind whenever somebody says, like, for example, Hadrian was one of the good emperors, which is another thing people say, or he was a peaceful emperor, that, like you said, it's an oxymoron. An empire is inherently not peaceful, and just because they weren't constantly waging wars to expand their borders like they were under other emperors doesn't mean that the people in the empire weren't suffering and dying and being enslaved because of the empire. Yeah. I feel like Roman history tends to be still taught sometimes in a fairly like series of great men type of way Mm. rather than as broader social history. And obviously like the way this podcast works (laughs) is fairly conducive to falling into that trap. Um, And I found that even at like a university level, you would kind of come across this and people would get very like sort of chummy with the emperors. Mm. Uh, And, you know, like we tend to be fairly familiar with the people we talk about. So I just thought, you know, it's probably good to try and actively avoid that a little bit in such cases as this. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's something we'll have to keep in mind. And I was thinking a bit about last episode as well when we come to Alexander the Great properly and other topics like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's easier in ancient history to just kind of disconnect yourself from the fact that all this stuff really happened to people. Mm. So I was like, oh, that was a fun story about an emperor. Mm. Yeah, I think that's why it was good, like your Mm. little uh, interjection there about Jewish history. Like, it's really important, yeah, because I think that sort of gives us that more tangible historical connection to the people involved in this and the people who were affected Mm. by his reign in a way that is obviously much easier to come by when it comes to, you know, sort of more recent European monarchs, probably like 15th, 16th century onwards, particularly Mm. in relation to colonialism. Yeah. So because Hadrian focused a lot during his reign on consulting consolidating the empire and strengthening its borders. He also traveled a lot throughout the empire. 
He often established civic building projects in the cities that he visited, so things like temples, baths, theatres, and so on, and that made him quite popular during his early reign. I'm just picturing, like, an ancient Roman bar or temple or whatever, but with the, like, red tape, and he's got the novelty-sized pair of scissors. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's kind of what it means for, like, Hadrian established building projects. He don't, like, lay stones. Oh, yeah, Maybe, like, foundation stones. You're you're telling me he didn't build the wall with his bare hands? (laughs) I'm sorry, but no. My he- God, my history teachers lied to me. <laughs> Why are we calling it Hadrian's Wall then? Shouldn't it be like, you know, Marcus's Wall and then other Marcus's Wall? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if it would have been built by Romans now, actually. Who built this wall physically? Like, my guess is that it would have been Roman soldiers. And I understand that they often stationed Roman soldiers in places far away from where they were from to mm-hmm. avoid, like, you know, them connecting up with local populations and mutinying. I think there were a lot of um, Middle Eastern and North African soldiers stationed in. England. So they probably built the wall. So yeah. shout but out then to those some guys. Of, some of, like, quite often people who were not, you know, from, like, Rome originally would end up with Roman names yeah. anyway. So, like, really the name Marcus does not indicate anything about your original ethnicity at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Hadrian himself, whose name is Publius Ailes Hadrianus, some of his family was from Italy, but some of his family was also Spanish. Mm. And, you know, his name's still Publius. <laughs> Which is not a Spanish name. No. (laughs) In the year 123, Hadrian's travels took him to the city of Bithynium. I was going to ask you in a Queer as Fact Geography moment, where is Bithynium? Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. When I started saying I was going to ask you, I was like, but should I? Is this unfair on Jason? But I just did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should have made us both guess, to be honest. But now I know that the answer is Turkey. (laughs) Yeah. I should have made you guess. Also, that's where Caesar went for his gaycation. Yeah. So Hadrian traveled to Bithynium partly because it was a Roman province. The reason it was a Roman province was because Nicomedes of Bithynia, the king of Bithynia during Caesar's reign, when he died, left Bithynia, which is the province, Bithynium is the city, left Bithynia to Rome in his will. Oh, that's a thing you can do, I guess. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) That's a thing you can do. And it's speculated at the time that the reason he did that was because of the relationship he had with Caesar when Caesar was in Bithynia. If you would like to hear more, you can listen to our episode on Caesar. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's both like a grand romantic gesture, but also like, you know, incredibly screwed up that you can just leave your city to someone <laughs> because yeah. you were attracted to them. <laughs> Wait, like, was it the city or like the whole oh, sorry. thing, though? Your kingdom, yeah. which then became a Roman province. Okay. That's, yeah, yeah, either yeah. way. The names are very similar. I, like, legit got confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the province is Bithynia, the city is Bithynium. Yeah, The sense. province was left to Rome by Nicomedes when he died, maybe because he thought Caesar was hot. <laughs> yeah, listen to our Caesar episode, or more. This trip in 123 CE is the only time we're aware of that Hadrian visited the area Antinous was from during Antinous's life, which makes it likely, although not certain, that this was the year that the two of them met. Although, as far as I'm aware, we have no mention of them together until the year 130, so this is speculation. Because we have no mention of Hadrian and Antinous together until 130, this also means, as I've kind of alluded to, we have very, very little knowledge of Antinous' life before that time, and even less of any of his thoughts or feelings or motivations, which means, unfortunately, throughout this episode, Antinous doesn't have much agency in the way we're going to talk about him, and that's Mm -hmm. just an unfortunate result of the sources that are available. I mean, and surely, like, reflects a lack of agency in his actual real life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely within his real life, there's a big power imbalance in the relationship. I guess what I wanted to point out was 
He would have definitely had thoughts and feelings sure, about yeah, what was yeah. going on, but we don't know what they were. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like a, a big power imbalance is almost understating it when you're talking about the Emperor of Rome at the height of its power. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then just some guy. Yeah. Like, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so although they may not have met in this year, I'm going to take this moment to introduce Antinous now. So sources do tell us pretty consistently that Antinous was born in the town of Mantinium, which is near Bithynium. And that he was born on the 27th of November. I love how we also have his birthday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, that calendar would be used throughout the Roman Empire, but were they, like, supplanting local calendars? Like, I don't know, but surely. Because, like, the calendar, like, as we use it today and as I referred to it here, like, that's a Roman calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I assume there were other local calendars. Bithynium, before it was a Roman province, had previously been colonized by Greece and was quite culturally Greek. I don't know what the Greek calendar looked like. Well... In any case, I guess it would have had the Roman calendar for longer than Antinous would have been alive. So yeah, like, yeah. we can be relatively sure of that birthday, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, it's very near my birthday. It is. <laughs> You'd be the same star sign, maybe. No, no. Really. no, no, no. It changes right after history, I think, uh, Sagittarius. Okay. Mm. I don't um, know what that means. <laughs> nor do I. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so although we know the date or we think we know the date that Antinous was born, we can only estimate the year that he was born based on comments later in his life. Isn't that wild? It is wild. (laughs) The reason for that is that after Antinous died, and obviously we'll talk later in the episode about what happens after his death, but there were various festivals that celebrated, for example, the day he was born and the day he died and so on. And so because that date was celebrated for years afterwards, we have a record of the date. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. but we don't have yeah. a record of the year because that wasn't important. Trying to guess at his birth year, the words Marachion, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, and Ephib, both referring to someone in their late teens or very early 20s, are regularly used about him at the time of his death in 130, which places his birth around the early 110s. And makes him about 35 years younger than Hadrian. Can I just confirm there? His death is in 130. Yes. And that's also the year in which we first hear about them being together. Yes. Okay. It's just an intense year. I guess so. Yeah, look, <laughs> just a heads up, Antinous is going to be here as a living person for a very short time in this episode. Cool. Yup. <laughs> So it was often said, especially in early modern scholarship, and still in kind of like popular conversational throwaway comments about Hayden Antinous, but not really in scholarship so much anymore, that Antinous was a slave. Only one ancient source that I'm aware of and that Lambert references refers to him as a slave. Since there are quite a few ancient criticisms of what's seen as Hadrian's extreme reaction to Antinous's death, we would expect that if he was a slave, this is something that would come up in these critiques, since they're generally talking about how it's not appropriate for an emperor to react so strongly to the death of someone who in Roman eyes was just not that important. So based on the fact that that's not mentioned in those sources, it seems unlikely that he was a slave. Well, that's Um, nice. That is nice. Yeah. (laughs) We'll take wins where we can get them in Rome. The power dynamic could have been even wider. It could have been. It's also worth noting that our one source that does say Antinous was a slave, our one ancient source, is the writer Eusebius, who's writing in about 310 CE. And he was a Christian. Christians, as a general rule, were very critical of Antinous and his relationship with Hadrian. And so it's quite likely that this reference to him being a slave was a way to degrade both Antinous and the relationship within that source, rather than a statement based on actual fact. Why do Christians hate Antinous in particular? We'll discuss later on. Hold oh. that thought. Okay, I'm, I'm so <laughs> intrigued. Like, he just didn't live that long. <laughs> 
So Antinous probably wasn't a slave, but conversely, as the scholar Craig Williams notes, there was no scandal surrounding Antinous's relationship with Hadrian during his lifetime. And as I said before, a relationship where the younger passive partner was a Roman citizen would have been considered inappropriate. Therefore, it's also unlikely that Antinous was a Roman citizen, given there wasn't much criticism of that relationship during Antinous's lifetime. In terms of what else we know about Antinous, as I said before, before it was Roman, Bithynia had been a Greek colony, and its biggest cultural influence during Antinous's time growing up there would probably have been Greek. There are also some sources that suggest Antinous may have spent some time in Rome during his childhood. Writing in around 197 CE, the author Tertullian says Antinous attended the imperial school for pages in Rome, and there are generally hints in writing about him that he was well-educated, either in Bithynia or Rome. Based on this information, Lambert speculates that Antinous probably came from a reasonably well-off Bithynian family, but not one of any great social prominence, or we would probably have more information about his family background. I do also want to mention that scholars have, very dubiously, often tried to read various aspects of Antinous's background and his personality and so forth into the many sculptures and depictions that we have of him. Ah, oh, yes, this. <laughs> his noble brow clearly indicates. Absolutely. I haven't written it down. There was definitely a quote from Lambert that referred to his, I think it was his noble cranium, maybe? Ooh, kidoki. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> and Lambert also writes, for example, that... It's a bit of a long quote, but the mouth projects notably, the top lip arching sharply upwards, the lower one protruding fully, so that sometimes it seems a trifle open, and the moist inner flesh of the mouth extends outwards. What? I've got more. Okay. Here, if anywhere, is the sensual or expressively oriental element in Antinous. Okay, Lambert, sir, (laughs) what the hell? What is that even meant to look like? A sexy pout with slightly open mouth. I want to point out before we tear into Lambert that I used Lambert as an example, but he's not an outlier here, really. (laughs) (laughs) That's not better. And I find this is an uncomfortably common thing in classics, especially I think partly because we don't have a lot of written sources a lot of the time, and so people are just trying to read what they can into, for example, a sculpture, looking at someone's face and trying to guess about their personality. But also, honestly, it is obviously linked to older ideas that were very prevalent in the 19th century, for example, about phrenology and racial essentialism and trying to base somebody's personality off the shape of their head and what we Mm. think their background was and that kind of thing. There is, like, a certain amount of legitimacy in that. Not in, like, phrenology, to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for the thing that sentence before. I was like, like, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) In in using Roman sculptures, like, as a source, because I understand that Roman sculptures were compared to, like, you know, other times and places more naturalistic and therefore Mm. you could make observations about like well you know this person was emphasized in this way showing that they definitely wanted to project like this kind of image of themselves like you know the statues of augustus with his kind of imperator position yeah like arm held up obviously is saying something about him as a man the like shape of his head isn't (laughs) yeah yeah And especially when, like, for example, that Lambert quote that I don't have written down, but I mentioned before, he kind of talks about Antinous's high forehead and, like, his gaze looking intelligent. Like, these are modern readings into the sculpture, I feel, rather than anything that we can say the sculptor was trying to convey. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, once you get to the point of, like, talking about his lips and his 
forehead and brow and the like. Like, you're going way beyond the, yeah, as Eli mentions, like, fairly valid way of looking at a fairly naturalistic sculpture and saying, okay, well, they've posed this person in this way, so they're trying to project confidence or, like, you know, someone who's thinking very hard or whatever. Like, yeah, it's just such a gulf between that and the moist inner mouth. <laughs> that was just a weirdly evocative description of, like, a part of someone I've never really heard described on paper before. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah. I think because, I don't know if I'm giving scholars the benefit of the doubt by giving them a justification here, but I think because <laughs> Antinous was famous for being incredibly attractive, sculptures of Antinous are therefore meant to be incredibly attractive, and scholars really get into that in ways mm. that, as you can see, border on pretty uncomfortable. I, I don't think that really sounded like you were making an excuse for them. Like, like you know, yeah, they do it, and it's bad. Yeah. I mean, I guess we can say if this is meant to be a sculpture of an incredibly hot person, what a very useful source and what Romans considered to be very hot. That's true. So, yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. We have that like, information. Whether it even looks like Antinous really looks like, this yeah. is what a very hot teenage boy looks like to the Romans. Yeah. So we learn something from those sculptures. Are the statues we have authentically Roman or are they like copies of copies of copies type thing? I think we have a mix. Okay, yeah. And some are we like don't know. Yeah, some yeah. we don't know. Some are copies, some are authentic. People get like very into sculpture of Antinous where we'll have things where you'll find like a fragment of a sculpture that's like a mouth, to use the example that Lambert has given us, and people will be like, oh yeah, I recognize that. That's a mouth of Antinous. This was a sculpture of Antinous. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some pretty uh, speculative stuff going on. Oh yeah. I would know that in a mouth flesh anywhere. Moist. I... <laughs> <laughs> but we do have sculptures that we definitely know are Roman sculptures of Antinous. Okay. <laughs> Moving on now to the relationship between Hadrian and Antinous, there's little question in modern scholarship about it being a sexual relationship. Lambert briefly entertains the question of was it sexual before concluding that we have no reason to believe that the relationship wasn't sexual. His point being that it would have been socially acceptable at the time for this to be a sexual relationship. We have reference elsewhere to Hadrian engaging in sexual relationships with teenage boys and men, and all our sources talk about Hadrian being attracted to Antinous. Cassius Dio refers to Antinous as the object of the emperor's eros, a word which Lambert argued at the time had explicit connotations of sexual love. Okay, that's a pretty compelling argument and, you know, somewhat refreshing. <laughs> yeah, that is very much a flip of the general argument that scholars have to do. Yeah, we're not going to have to have that debate today. All right, cool. All right, Lambert, you might be thirsty for statues, but I'll give you that. <laughs> maybe a bit racist, maybe thirsty for statues, but I was going to say not homophobic. We're going to discuss some, like, <laughs> kind of maybe homophobic stuff he said later on. You know. But not as homophobic as you could have been. Gold star. Yeah. <laughs> so Hadrian is also depicted as having played a sort of mentoring role to Antinous. Writing not long after Antinous' death, the poet Pancrates refers to Hadrian and Antinous hunting a lion together, and he states that Hadrian wounded the lion but did not kill it, quote, wishing to test to the full the sureness of aim of his beauteous Antinous. So this combination of a sexual and mentoring relationship reflects to some degree the Greek model of pederasty, in which an adult male citizen had a relationship with an adolescent who had begun puberty but not yet fully reached adulthood. The relationship between Hadrian and Antinous, however, doesn't fully fall within the standards of pederasty. Notably, within the Greek model, it was accepted and even expected for 
pederastic relationships to take place between an older and a younger citizen, which kind of explains the mentoring aspect of that relationship. While, as we've said, in Rome it was inappropriate for a male citizen of any age to play what Romans saw as the passive role in a sexual relationship, which was also the role assumed to be played by the younger partner. And people like slaves and foreigners as well, such as Antinous, were more acceptable sexual partners in this context. So, talking more about the relationship and about specifically Hadrian's sexuality, scholars are often quite confident in stating that Hadrian was gay. Lambert, for example, makes this claim, and writing much more recently in 2008, the British Museum curator Thorsten Opper boldly states, quote, Hadrian was gay, as the opening sentence to his chapter about Hadrian and Antinous in his book on Hadrian. The historian Augusta conversely tells us that Hadrian was critiqued during his life for his passion for both adult men and married women. This is, however, one of the few, if not the only, ancient references to Hadrian having an attraction to women, and it does come in the context of a critique of Hadrian for unacceptable sexual behaviour. So we might read it as more of a generic attack rather than something that actually provides us with any facts about Hadrian's life. And the claim in the Historia Augusta is also weakened by the fact that we have no examples of specific married women, or indeed any women, that Hadrian was attracted to. Even if it was the case, however, that Hadrian had a preference for or was exclusively attracted to men, I do think we need to be wary of bringing all our own cultural understandings with us when we make a statement like Hadrian was gay. And I say this specifically because I've seen examples of scholars taking that statement and then assuming that means that gay culture looked exactly then like it does now. So classicist James Morwood, for example, talking in his biography of Hadrian about Lucius Caeonius Commodus, whom Hadrian was reportedly attracted to, contends that, quote, Commodus is unlikely to have been a member of any imperial homosexual set since he was notorious for his pursuit of women. When was that published? It's pretty recent, but I couldn't tell you a year. Let the record show that Eli made the tut-tut noise. <laughs> oh, that's just such a basic... It is. Like, whether you're talking about, uh, like, sexual norms today or in ancient Rome. Like, so... Yeah. I googled James Maud because I was like, come on, who are you? You should know better. And I think he's at Oxford. Okay. So I was mad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this idea of exclusively same-gender attracted men gathering together in social groups based on that identity in the Roman court just isn't something we have evidence for. And Romans were more likely to conflate being notorious in your pursuit of women, as Morwood had said, with also behaving similarly towards men. Both were seen as lacking self-control and acting on your attractions with too much freedom, rather than being specifically defined by what gender you might be expressing those attractions Mm. towards. So, like, if we have the Kinsey scale that goes from, like, super straight to super gay, then they just have, like, none horny to too horny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a very good summary of Roman sexuality. Yeah. yeah. So it's more, <laughs> like, ace to aloe than it is yeah. straight to gay. I guess it's less ace to aloe and more, like, uh, well, abstinent yeah. to, mm-hmm. like, it's about self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's about having those feelings but not acting on them. Is what, like, a Roman man should do. According to who? What a terrible system. (laughs) Well, I would like to see Cato's manager. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously Cato is Cato's manager, and Cato is very strict about that. (laughs) Imagine that, being like, you should be so horny and do, like, virtually nothing about it. Yes, good (laughs) masculinity. You can see how Christians also became the way they are. Uh. So yeah, getting back to a slightly more serious point for a second, I do think that points like Morewood's and that kind of attitude more generally 
do undermine the potential for queer people to find connection in historical settings by expecting it to look exactly like queer experience does today and therefore dismissing it as not existing if it doesn't. And that really mm. limits the amount of queer history we can find if we go in with that attitude. I mean, it's also obviously a reductive perspective on modern queer history. Yeah. It's interesting that that's even a trend in the scholarship because I have come across sort of the opposite thing much more often where, like, I feel like we're so set on at the start of like any discussion about sexuality having to be like, and obviously like the modern understanding of homosexuality and heterosexuality is just socially constructed and cannot be said to have existed before like the 1800s or whenever. So we cannot understand this as being gay. Like that's, you know, mm. just becomes such a understood and like embedded part of the scholarship. Like, yep, Foucault, you won, you did it. <laughs> So to have the opposite also mm. be going around is interesting. Yeah, I think in the case of Hadrian and Antinous, the attitudes are a little bit different because, as we'll talk about later in the episode, Hadrian and Antinous are just an incredibly famous male-male couple, and they were a huge model for gay men or men attracted to men more generally in the 19th century and the early 20th century, so they're really embedded in, like, male same sex attractive okay. culture, which I think is why we get those statements that, like, yeah, Hadrian was gay, because we all know that gay men are obsessed with Hadrian, which they were mm. back in the day. But, like, same with the sacred band, right? In last mm. episode, we had that whole bit about, you know, women, etc., all being obsessed with a sacred band. And if anything, I saw more, like, the version of the argument and scholarship that I was talking about present in that, where people were, like, scared to make the argument that they were, like, adult male couples because it would seem too much like just saying gay mm. men existed in the ancient world. So, like, uh. Yeah. I guess maybe a factor is that, like, that's a group, whereas Hadrian's an individual, and it's much easier to just be like, yeah, this individual was gay, mm. than to be like, yeah, this whole model of military unit was gay in the modern mm. sense. Maybe that's what's maybe. happening. I don't know. Yeah. So, the first time that I'm aware of that we do definitively hear of Hadrian and Antinous together is, as I said, in the year 130. So, there's that lion hunt, which I briefly referred to in the poem by Pancrates, which apparently took place in Libya, although we don't have an exact date on that. And then we know that Hadrian, Antinous, and the imperial party more generally traveled to Egypt in 130, where at the start of October they began a cruise up the Nile. At the end of October, in 130, near the Egyptian town of Hirwer, to quote Hadrian himself, by way of Cassius Dio, Antinous fell into the Nile, and apparently drowned. I was about to say, if there's anything that Agatha Christie has taught me, it's that a river cruise on the Nile is a sure recipe for death. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are. <laughs> so, there have been many theories, both ancient and modern, about how and why Antinous died. Our first theory is that he drowned. Yeah, so our first theory is obviously that he did just accidentally drown. Various scholars that I read were like, no, he was a strong young athletic man. He couldn't possibly have drowned. Yes, he could. People drown all the time. Yeah, I mean, we lost a whole prime minister who, like, was good at swimming. Yeah, like, yeah. was a good swimmer swimming in a place he swam all the time, and he just drowned. It happens. It happens. His name was Harold Holt. We have a swimming pool named after him. We meme on him endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I learned to swim. <laughs> anyway. So, the reason that we don't just assume he drowned and move on with our lives is we have three main ancient sources that talk in detail about Antinous' death. So, we've got Cassius Dio, who we know already, we've got the Historia Augusta, and we have the 4th century writer Sextus Aurelius Victor. So Sextus Aurelius Victor. Yes. What a powerful name. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hello, yes, my name is Sex Champion. <laughs> Gold Sex Champion. Gold Sex Champion. Sex champion Victor is like a Russian submarine captain. <laughs> <laughs> 
So all three of these sources question the narrative that Antinous just drowned. And we'll talk about exactly what they all say as we go through our other possibilities. Please tell me they all have different theories. They all have kind of different angles on one theory. Okay. Okay. Is um, that theory aliens? No. <laughs> okay. But I it, don't care. Then. <laughs> if you would like to bring in the aliens theory once we've done with the All other right. theories, you can. So we'll start off, though, with the theory that Antinous died by suicide. This one is the least talked about in ancient sources, but some modern authors have argued that the Historia Augusta alludes to it with a statement regarding Antinous' death that, quote, some assert what both his beauty and Hadrian's excessive sensuality make obvious. And then they don't say what that is. And then they don't say what that is. So... <laughs> Thanks. Lambert and other scholars believe that this reference to their relationship, and specifically to Antinous' beauty, alludes to the fact that in Roman eyes that beauty would have been fading as Antinous reached adulthood, and he would have therefore been becoming less desirable to Hadrian. And they go on to argue that given that Antinous' role in Hadrian's court was derived from his relationship with Hadrian, and therefore by extension from his youth and beauty, Lambert makes the argument that Antinous would have seen his power and influence waning as he aged and seen few prospects for his future once he was no longer an appropriate age to be in a relationship with Hadrian. How old is he now? So he's probably around his late teens or at the oldest early 20s when he dies. One. Oof. Two, that seems like it could be a reasonable theory, but I feel like we need like way more information about how their relationship was going at the time that we seem to just not yeah. have. Yeah, we don't have that information. We do also have references elsewhere. So, for example, I referred to Lucius Caonus Commodus, who was an adult man who Hadrian was apparently attracted to and apparently adopted as his heir because of his attraction to him. So we do have reference to Hadrian favouring adult men mm. for similar reasons to why he favoured Antinous, apparently. The intense degree to which Hadrian is attracted to Antinous seems to be more than just physical attraction. Yeah, that's not that... something we have hugely like talked about in ancient sources that much, but okay. they do, for example, occasionally reference Antinous being intelligent and wise and sort of talking him up from not just a physical standpoint. So, mm -hmm. like, yeah, perhaps so. Yeah, I mean, you did talk a bit before about the mentoring aspect of the yeah. relationship. Yeah. Given the lack of ancient sources that really talk about this idea, this theory also seems to me to be born from the later idea that really comes out of Christian writers that Antinous' relationship with Hadrian ruined Antinous and is basically, to speak very broadly, an idea born out of Christian homophobia. Whether or not scholars like Lambert are being actively homophobic in perpetuating this theory or whether or not this is something that's just kind of subconsciously entered their thinking about the relationship between Hadrian and Antinous. I don't know, and it probably differs from scholar to scholar, but I think that's definitely a factor in the fact that this is a theory that's put forward. Moving away from that possibility, all three of our ancient sources make reference to Antinous' death as some kind of sacrifice. So Cassius Dio links the sacrifice to Hadrian's broader interest in divination and magic. We do have references elsewhere in sources about Hadrian to this interest. The Historia Augusta tells us, for example, that Hadrian loved astrology and that each year on the 1st of January he would predict everything that would happen to him for that year, including apparently correctly predicting his own death. I mean, that's a lie. Yeah, like, I don't think that's true, but that indicates his interest in astrology. Specifically, Dio connects his statement about Antinous' sacrifice to Hadrian's interest in hirugetes, which Lambert tells us is a word often used to reference a sacrifice whose entrails are examined for divination. 
This type of divination was not uncommon in Rome, but generally done using birds or other animals. Lambert suggests that because Hadrian was quite unwell at this time, which is referenced elsewhere, and also there was some political unrest in Egypt at this time, which I'll talk about a bit more in a minute, Hadrian would have been quite concerned to get an understanding of what the future held. Yeah, but like, then killing your boyfriend is pretty extreme. Is that something we have like reason to believe would be in character for Hadrian? Not really. Okay. Also, do they retrieve the body from the Nile? They do retrieve the body, yes. Okay. And we don't really have any specific information about what happens to the body after that. Okay. But if your plan is to kill Antinous so you can examine his entrails for divination, chucking him in the Nile seems a risky way to go about that because you are very much risking losing those entrails. I think the theory is more that they killed him and examined his entrails and then they were just like, No, he fell in the river, guys. He just fell in the river. And then threw him in the Nile and then took him out of the Nile again. (laughs) Or potentially he was never in the Nile and that was always a lie. Oh, but then it'd be dry and everyone would be like, he didn't drown. (laughs) Just pour a bucket of water on him. (laughs) Yeah, all right. I have no further questions. (laughs) I'll talk a bit more about a few of the other sacrifice-related theories and then we can talk about whether or not we think there's any credibility to any of this. If you're going to pretend he drowned, though, like, he would have been eviscerated. Yeah. And obviously, like, maybe observation of that was hushed up or didn't survive, but I don't know. Yeah, I think the general point, and I'm not saying I agree with him, but the general point that Lambert makes and that is made by other scholars as well is that if Hadrian had done this sacrifice because of concerns about either his own health or political instability, that's not something he would have wanted to widely publicize because obviously those are things that make him seem quite vulnerable. So therefore it was hushed up and faked as a drowning. I think once again, this is one of those things that you can say, but then like logistically, what did that look like is a very valid question. Like just kill him in private then and just say he got sick and died. Yeah. Yeah. Like, especially in the context, like if you think about this cruise as being something done by like an Imperial court party, Mm. Especially in that context. What does that look like? How did that happen? So instead of divination, Sextus Aurelius Victor tells us that, quote, When Hadrian was desiring to prolong his life by any means, the magician, presumably an Egyptian magician, but it's not specified, proposed that someone should die voluntarily on his behalf. Antinous alone offered himself. The Historia Augusta might also be referring to this when it says that, quote, Antinous sacrificed himself for Hadrian. We do have other evidence for a Roman belief that you could sacrifice your life for someone else, and specifically the idea that this had to be a willing sacrifice. There's an inscription, for example, found in Rome that refers to a young woman who believed that her death would prolong her husband's life. And we do also know, as I've mentioned, that Hadrian was ill in the years leading up to Antinous' death. In addition to that, a now lost gemstone written about in the 1800s, so a Roman gemstone that they had in the 1800s and have now lost, reportedly depicted Antinous with a sick Hadrian alongside the Roman goddess of healing, Hygeia, and the rod of Asclepius, which is another symbol of healing. So this also seems to tie into this theory. Unfortunately, though, this engraved gemstone is now lost and we only have drawings of it done in the 1800s to go off of. How big was this gemstone? I don't know. That's okay. I guess I'll try and find that drawing that was done of it in the 1800s and put it on our blog and show it to you. Okay. So I have to check the blog to see if it turns <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Follow queerasfact.tumblr.com, Eli. <laughs> I do. A final possible reason for Antinous' sacrifice 
is that he was sacrificed to the Nile itself. So in the two years leading up to his death, as well as in 130 itself, the annual Nile flood, which provided vital irrigation and fertile soil for Egyptian agriculture, had been very low, and so Egypt was experiencing famine, and as I've mentioned already, there was political unrest because of that. This possibility also isn't explicitly outlined in those three sources I've mentioned, but we do see possible references to it elsewhere in ancient sources. Notably on the Pinkian Obelisk, which was established by Hadrian in Rome to commemorate Antinous' death, which refers to the Nile behaving gratefully towards Hadrian in connection with the death. Antinous also died during the annual festival of the Nile, which celebrated the resurrection of the god Osiris after he was killed and his body parts thrown in the Nile. As a god of fertility, Osiris' death and rebirth were linked to the Nile's annual cycle of flood. And after his death, Antinous is also regularly associated with Osiris, which also supports this theory. So there are some some things going on there, clearly. Yeah. Is it possible that all of this imagery about him, you know, increasing the flood quality of the Nile and whatnot came afterwards as a rationalization of his death, Hadrian and or others, giving it some kind of purpose to what was just a meaningless tragedy? Yeah, definitely. So after Antinous' death, and I will talk about this more in depth in a second, but after Antinous' death, he was deified by Hadrian and essentially became a god. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but bear with me for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Seems fine. This is generally put forward as a decision made by Hadrian, but it is quite likely that because he drowned in the Nile, Antinous would have been deified by the Egyptians anyway. So anyone who drowned in the Nile was considered sacred. A year before Antinous had drowned, for example, a young girl named Isadora had also drowned in the Nile, and there was a cult centred around her in the nearby city of Hermopolis, near where Antinous drowned. So anyone who drowned in the Nile from an Egyptian perspective would have been quite closely linked to ideas about death and rebirth, gods like Osiris who was closely connected to the Nile and more generally being seen as sacred. So even if Antinous wasn't deliberately drowned in the Nile, I think these ideas would have inevitably grown up around him after his death because of Egyptian beliefs about how the Nile was sacred and associated with various gods. Like, surely a lot of people drown in the Nile. Yeah, look, I found that confusing too when I was reading about this. And, for example, Isadora came up, who was really just, like, a random girl. She wasn't like Antinous, for example, who was closely connected with an empress. She was just an Egyptian girl who drowned in the Nile. And there was a shrine built to her and so forth. And I was sort of thinking, but don't a bunch of people drown in the Nile? But I don't have an answer for you. Okay. I guess my suspicion would be that, for example, children and prominent foreign dignitaries do not often drown in the Nile. See, my suspicion would be that children would drown in the Nile a lot more because they're children. Like, they had a lot of sort of, like, commerce-based or, you know, like, agricultural-based stuff that was around or in the Nile. Yeah. We do hear, like, just having read a bit of Egyptian literature and whatnot about like sort of leisure activities that take place Mm. in the Nile about like people on boats in the Nile and whatnot. Like the Nile is key to Mm. Egyptians. So they're in it at least sometimes. And I feel like you only need to have like a couple of drownings a year to very quickly have like a lot of cults about people. That's true. That's true. I mean, obviously those cults would have been of various sizes. So I know, for Mm. example, that there was a cult around Isadora, but very localized and very small. Yeah. And possibly because she was, I don't know what age she was, but because she was young when she drowned, that may have meant that 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 would have been a bigger cult 
possibly mm-hmm. from a perspective of her family wanting to commemorate her much more because yeah. she was a child. Yeah, I guess that was kind of what I was getting yeah. at, was the idea that maybe, like, people for whom it's a tragedy and they were taken yeah. before their time, yeah. you know, as opposed to, like, a local fisherman drowning in the Nile, I feel probably less likely to result in a cult. Yeah, yeah, that may be true. Um, I'm just thinking about the way that, like, our modern society commemorates people's yeah. deaths and, yeah. like, you know, certain people's deaths are, like, considered very meaningful in mm. a way that other people's deaths are not. Yeah, yeah. I don't find it super surprising, I guess, mm. that, like, you know, you would have these cults developing, but not for literally every person who drowned in the Nile. Yeah. Isadora is a Greek name, not an Egyptian name. So, obviously, like... By this point, Egypt has been under the Romans and before that the Greeks. Mm, Is this, like you said, this is an Egyptian belief. Do you mean that as like it's a belief that we see in Egypt pre it being conquered by these outside forces? Or do you mean it's a belief that was present in Egypt at that time but might have links to Greek religion? I don't know about the history of this belief. It's a belief that was present in Egypt at that time and is linked into Egyptian religion. And, mm-hmm. for example, like I talked about the links that are made between Osiris and Antinous. And also, for example, we see that people who drown the Nile are often embalmed, and that's an Egyptian practice. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely tied in with specifically like local Egyptian religion, but I don't know whether that's something that existed pre the Greek colonization of Egypt or not. And maybe existed in a different form and had yeah. been merged with some kind of Greek or Roman tradition. Yeah. I know that the Greeks were, like, absolutely mad for making little colds to things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it doesn't really change anything fundamentally, but it's interesting to think about in terms of, like, synthesis of different religious traditions and yeah. things like that. And I don't know if the Egyptians were similarly mad for making little cults pre-Greek influence in the area or not. So just to conclude our conversation about the possible causes of Antinous' death, I'm not going to pick one of those out and be like, yep, definitely correct. This is definitely what happened. I don't think we can really definitively say how or why Antinous died. Circumstantial evidence points towards some kind of sacrifice, but then again, that could also be something created after the fact to explain what had occurred and happened to occur around a sacred date in a sacred river. So we really don't have anything very concrete to go off, unfortunately. It seems most likely to me that he just drowned. Yeah. I feel like the other explanations would require... A lot of conditions to be met in terms of, like, circumstances that would have to be in place in order for that to be true. Mm. And, like, drowning doesn't require that people just drown. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's not to say that, like, any of this sacrifice stuff definitely didn't occur. Yeah. Scholars are pretty unwilling to engage with the possibility that he just drowned because, I mean, honestly, to be blunt, it's not very interesting. I think, secondly, scholars don't necessarily – I don't know why they don't know this, but they just don't necessarily seem to know how easy it is to drown. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe in Australia we have way more of a focus on drowning in, like, childhood and in our culture I mean, than I guess in other we, places. We definitely do see that in Australia, like, a lot of, like, tourists, for example, drown in Australia much more than Australians do. Oh, okay. Because Australians are more mm-hmm. aware of how easy it is to drown. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we do have a lot of coastline. Yeah. So Hadrian's reaction to Antinous' death was generally considered by his contemporaries to be extreme. He mourned in the words of the Historia Augusta, muliebrita, which means like a woman. That actually brings up a great point that we should have been discussing this whole time if we're saying why did Antinous die. If we're going to suggest that Hadrian had like something to do with it, Hadrian's reaction is a pretty yeah. key thing to consider. And if he's upset, then like maybe he didn't kill him. That's a fair point and something that we didn't talk about when we were talking about the possible reasons that he died. And Hadrian, from all the sources that we have about this, was absolutely distraught 
when Antenos died. He drowned on accident. I'm becoming more convinced. You've persuaded me. Cool. It's <laughs> my episode now. <laughs> For the second time. Yes. <laughs> So, although I said earlier that Hadrian's relationship with Antinous was not inappropriate in a Roman context, this extreme reaction was considered inappropriate for a Roman man, and you can get that impression for the fact that they used this word meaning womanly to describe his reaction, and that ties in with what we talked about before about how Roman men are really meant to be characterized by self-control, whether that's about their sexual desires or more broadly about their life in general, and so extreme emotional mourning wasn't something that was considered appropriate. What form did this take? The examples that we have of what he did after Antinous' death are that he named a flower after Antinous, he saw a star in the sky that had apparently never been noticed or named before and named that after Antinous, he founded a city which was named after Antinous, and he also, as we'll get into in much more depth in a minute, made Antinous into a god. Just everything. Quite sweet. It is quite sweet. It is quite sweet. And it has been seen throughout history since then by queer people as a really like grand gesture of queer love. Basically. I mean, like, yes. Yes. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> We've had some incredibly grand gestures of queer love in this episode. I thought you were going to say in this podcast, and I was going to say we may have hit the grandest here. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Is it more romantic to name a city after your dead partner or to bequeath your entire <laughs> province to the guy you had a crush on? <laughs> Listeners, please give me your opinions on this. I mean, I think Hadrian, like, we've got the flower, we've got the star, we've got the city, we've got the cult. (laughs) Nice. He's definitely covering all his bases. Yeah, we've got a lot happening here. It's like that list of what gift you're meant to give on anniversary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not expected to gift a city to my partner on, like, the seventh anniversary or whatever. (laughs) That's too early for I mean, that. it's possible they were at their first anniversary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you consider, like, people being like, calm down, mate, is obviously a terrible reaction. But if you consider yeah. that maybe they've been together for, like, six months, it's like, well, that is a lot, I guess. That is a lot. It is especially a lot in a culture where men are not expected to show extreme emotion. Let's talk a little bit about Antinous' apotheosis. If you don't know what that word means, it basically means becoming a god. Comes up a lot in classics, not that much elsewhere. So Antinous was far from the first person to become a god in the ancient world. Hadrian himself had already been recognized as a god in Egypt and in Asia, in the east of the Roman Empire, as had other emperors before him. And while it wasn't general practice to recognize living people as gods in Italy and Rome, other emperors and their families had been deified after death in Italy, Rome, and throughout the empire. Being a pretty bureaucratic state, Rome had formal processes in place for this. (laughs) Time to do your becoming a god paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Generally what would happen is for an emperor or a member of his family to become a god, there would have to be senatorial approval for that. Hadrian, however, bypassed this, announcing Antinous' deification without senatorial approval and beginning to spread the news of it by letters and then in person around Greece, Egypt, and West Asia before communicating to the Senate about it. I do find that quite funny. I guess that's how it was, but just the idea of spreading the news of like, hello, citizens of (laughs) Egypt and Greece, my boyfriend, who is dead, is a god now. Yours sincerely. (laughs) 
Hadrian. Yeah, I don't have the text of any of those letters written down. I don't know if we actually do still have any of those letters. I don't think we do, but like, I'd be very curious to see how exactly he framed that letter. So the cult of Antinous worshipping him as a god quickly became very popular and spread throughout the empire. We have evidence in around 70 different cities of some kind of worship or honouring of Antinous. Temples were built, coins were minted with his face on them, there were festivals and games celebrated in his honour. We know that in Rome there were two priesthoods to him, and in Italy more generally, remains of statues as big as five or six metres tall have been found, suggesting that they served a large public function. Um, That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a six metres tall statue of my hot boyfriend. I will not be taking questions (laughs) at this time. Thank you, senators. I thought you were going to say five or six feet tall, and I was like, yeah, that's like a human life height. size. And I was like, oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Presumably not life size. <laughs> I'm sure Antonis was a normal height man, given we have no record suggesting otherwise. In the eight years after Antinous' death, it's estimated that around 2,000 sculptures were made of him, and depictions of him have been found in some form or another from Britain to Algeria to Turkey to Holland, so all across the Roman Empire. Sorry, did you say eight years? Yes. And 2,000 sculptures? Yes. You're going to do some maths? Well, yeah, I was going to say, so eight years is like approximately 400 weeks. So that's five sculptures every week across the Roman Empire being made of Antinous. <laughs> There was one. I see how we have them still now. Yeah. The image of Antinous is one of the most popular in the ancient world. One of the authors I read, and I'm afraid I can't remember who it was, referred to this time as a cultural renaissance and put forward that it actually just generally increased the artistic output of the empire for this time because statues of Antinous were so popular that they just had to make more art than they'd previously been making, <laughs> which is wild. That's incredible. <laughs> I didn't read about that too in depth, so I don't know exactly what the like evidence behind that claim is, but it's pretty incredible if it's true. There were also other art forms that come down to us less often, things like poetry and song. So we have that example of that poem I talked about about the lion earlier on. And we can assume from what does survive that there was also a proliferation of that kind of art about Antinous in these years as well. The scholar Opper suggests that the reason behind the spread of the cult, or one main reason behind the spread of the cult, was a political reason. Basically, he puts forward that worshipping Antinous and very publicly worshipping Antinous was a surefire way for people throughout the empire to curry favour with Hadrian. In Lepcus Magna, for example, in modern-day Libya, archaeological evidence suggests that a new statue of Apollo that had recently been erected was quickly modified to represent Antinous in preparation for a visit from Hadrian. That's hilarious. And I was about to say, yeah, because you mentioned earlier that Hadrian did a lot of travel yeah. around the empire. That would then make sense that, yeah, it's just like, cool, Hadrian's coming quick, quick. What statue can we <laughs> make into Antinous? <laughs> that really straddles the line between sweet and heartfelt and ghoulish in a way that I really didn't know was possible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The cult of Antinous also would have resonated culturally with people in various parts of the empire. So Antinous himself, being from Bithynia, had connections to Greek culture, which would have led to more popularity in the Greek or Greek-influenced parts of the empire. He'd also died in Egypt and was tied in with Osiris and that religion. So that was a way for Egyptian people to connect to Antinous. And obviously because of his connection with Hadrian as the emperor, he also could have resonated with Romans in the empire. So a big part of the empire's population could have found their own connections with Antinous, which is also another explanation for the popularity of the cult. 
So he tested well with a broad range of popular demographics. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) I mean, I think the point is made that, you know, as well as his emotional reaction, Hadrian may have seen, you know, political merit to this cult and that may have been part of his motivation for it. So like, yeah. Possibly. Yeah, that was one thing I was about to say. It was just that, like, we've talked at length about how Hadrian is at this point quite ill. I assume to the point of maybe he's going to die. I mean, he doesn't really get better. He is sick in 130 and he gets sicker till he dies. So, like, he dies in 138. So, like, yeah. Yeah, having a cult and, you know, therefore this kind of cultural renaissance, you know, that's a huge way to kind of cement his rule at a time when it was probably looking a bit unsure. There's an interesting like set of like dynamics at play here of like how much of what he was doing was strategic but then also he's copying criticism for it. So yeah. was it strategic or was it purely emotional or was it both? It's also worth considering that there's a lot of different cultural groups in the Empire and so this criticism of him behaving in a womanly fashion that's criticism coming from a Roman cultural perspective and in other cultures throughout the Empire his reaction may have been considered more appropriate. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I guess that's a factor to consider if we're talking about the appeal to, say, Egyptian people or Greek-influenced people. Maybe they would have had a different understanding of whether this type of mourning was appropriate for a man or not. Yeah, okay. I also think to bring this again back to the unsolved mystery, in quotation, <laughs> of Antinous's death. Mm-hmm. I think all of this stuff that Hadrian does after his death, if anything, supports the understanding that it was just an accidental drowning mm. and then all of that stuff came after the fact. Because obviously he does engage in a lot of mourning practices after the fact that are designed at processing and making meaning out of this that mm-hmm. results in these like religious imagery. So it's only one step removed to understand all of that stuff that we talked about as possible cause of his death is coming as a reaction to it instead. Like that fits very yeah. easily within that context. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm pretty convinced by your theory. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the cult of Antinous, unfortunately we have no intact surviving temple of Antinous to give us a clear idea of what worship of him may have looked like. We do know, as I mentioned very early on, that in some cities they celebrated the dates of his birth and his death. And we also know that there were dramatic and musical performances as well as games, so like sports contests, celebrated in his honour as well. Although we did have those big statues, those six metre tall statues that I mentioned, he does generally seem to have been celebrated at smaller sanctuaries or at chapels within other sites. So for example, we know of shrines to him in gymnasiums. There are also some hints of sexual rituals, although they do come from quite critical sources. So the Greek writer Celsus refers to the activities of an unrelated cult as, quote, more iniquitous and impure than those of the revelers of Antinous in Egypt, while Christian writer Clement of Alexandria describes their rites as, quote, really shameful and also talks about them featuring fornication. The other thing I wanted to talk about with regards to Hadrian's reactions to Antinous' death is the foundation of the city of Antinopolis. So the foundation of this city is the first action we know of which Hadrian took to commemorate Antinous' death. The foundation date of the city is recorded as being the 30th of October, so while we don't know the exact date of the death, we know it was in late October, which puts this mere days after Antinous died. So what does founding a city entail? The city was built and did 
thrive as a city for many years, but I think the original foundation is basically just Hadrian being like, yep, we're going to have a city here on the site where Antinous drowned, and it's going to be called Antinopolis. You know, maybe they had some kind of ritual, like we have like turning a sword or laying a stone, but basically a verbal ritual action rather than a physical one, I think. Okay. So the fact that this city was founded so soon after Antinous' death does point to this action being more of one motivated by personal grief than mm. a shrewd political action. Though obviously we don't know. But the establishment of the city was also quite politically beneficial for Rome. Lambert suggests this might be something that Hadrian originally did out of grief and then later saw political benefits to. He more broadly makes this suggestion about Hadrian's reaction to Antinous' death as a whole, that his general actions in the first weeks or months were out of personal grief, and then he began to see the political benefits of Antinous' cult and of Antinopolis, for example. So talking about Antinopolis, somewhat like Bithynia, Egypt had been colonised by Greeks before it was colonised by Romans. Broadly speaking, it was through governing structures set up by Greeks that Rome controlled the area of Egypt, but there was no Greek city in the central region of Egypt where Antinous had died. So by establishing Antinopolis and subsequently populating it with mostly Greek and Roman populations from other Greek cities in Egypt and Roman veterans who often granted land after serving in the army, Hadrian was able to create a much stronger Greco-Roman presence in an era of Egypt which had lacked that, and therefore strengthened the Roman political standing in Egypt while also tying that in with a cult that was recognised by Egyptians because of the connections between Antinous and Osiris and the Nile. Yeah, so like without the cult of Antinous there, founding that city might have been something that native Egyptian populations mm. weren't as keen on. Yeah. But because the cult of Antinous was popular with them, it's kind of hard for them to then be like, yeah, but we don't want the city named after the same guy. Yeah. Shrewd. Yeah, quite politically cunning. And overall, this does seem to be the situation with Hadrian's reactions to Antinous' death. Like, we can read them as personal grieving reactions, and they do make sense in that way, but they also generally do seem to have political benefits towards stabilizing and consolidating Roman control throughout the empire, which is something that Hadrian's been trying to do throughout his reign. So as I've mentioned, Hadrian left Egypt after Antinous' death and continued his travels around the empire for a time, before eventually returning to Rome. He spent much of his last years at his villa, not far outside of Rome, and it's probably here that is also Antinous' final resting place, although we can't be sure. The Pinkian obelisk refers to, quote, Antinous, who rests in this tomb in the country estate of the emperor of Rome, although that's a uh, pretty conjectural translation because the Pinkian obelisk is written in Egyptian hieroglyphs, but not very good ones, presumably written in translation from an original Greek statement that's lost, written by someone who didn't speak or write Egyptian as a native language. It's also worn away by time. There's a lot to deal with there, but that's a possible translation. There is also archaeological evidence at Hadrian's Villa of a sort of Egyptian-themed monument to Antinous. So we find various Egyptian-style statues of Antinous, all in the one area of the villa, and early archaeological notes also refer to canopic jars, so those are the jars that Egyptians used to store the organs of embalmed bodies. So there's notes referring to those jars found at the site, which would fit with the Egyptian practice of embalming those who drowned in the Nile and may have been part of Antinous' tomb. Unfortunately, they're only referred to in early notes. We don't have the jars anymore or know that much detail about the context in which they were found. Hadrian himself eventually passed away in the year 138 at the age of 62, and he was succeeded as emperor by his adopted heir, Antoninus Pius. 
After Hadrian's death, the intense popularity of Antinous' cult was relatively short-lived. Evidence suggests very few sculptures of him were made after about 140, but the cult did remain active despite not being as popular, or at least not yielding as many artworks, for many years after Hadrian's death. So coins were minted depicting Antinous into the 200s, games in his honour continued in Athens at least into the 260s, and Egyptian evidence for the cult peters out in around the 350s. Pretty good. Yeah, that's over 200 years. One factor in the demise of the cult was the growing popularity of Christianity, mm. which condemned Roman religion generally, but also Antinous in particular. Rude. <laughs> yeah. So one reason for this was that he and Hadrian's relationship was a same-sex relationship, but also the relationship between Hadrian and Antinous called to mind specific ideas of Roman decadence and immorality and these images of a decadent emperor consorting in Egypt with a kind of court of young male favourites which were specifically also ideas that were condemned by Christianity. There were also a number of parallels drawn between Antinous and Jesus. Both men died quite young, both were connected with ideas of resurrection and healing, and both had cults that were growing in around the same historical period. Christians, therefore, seem to have seen the cult of Antinous as a particular threat to Christianity. And over the centuries, Christian authors have alternatively condemned or denied any relationship between Hadrian and Antinous. In the 1700s in Europe, there was a renaissance of interest in Antinous, as the upper classes in Europe, especially Western Europe, became increasingly fascinated by the ancient world. Unsurprisingly, Antinous was especially popular amongst queer men, including people we've talked about in this podcast. <laughs> so the gay Prussian king, Frederick the Great, for example, had a bust of Antinous at his summer palace, which was generally decorated with very queer artwork throughout. I thought I remembered that from the yeah. Frederick episode. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about it in the Frederick episode. Because I didn't know Antinous's name at the time. I was sort of like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> Who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, a very famous gay. Yeah. And the queer English writer Horace Walpole also collected figures of Antinous. Attempts to suppress conversations about Antinous and Hadrian, which had begun with Christian condemnation, did continue, however. When the queer 19th century British writer John Addington Simmons approached the British Museum looking for information for an essay he was writing, he was apparently told it was, quote, very courageous to ask even artistic questions about Antinous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He did write the essay, however, and gradually queer Europeans were able to piece together a more complete picture of the sources on Antinous, and we see Antinous increasingly entering the popular consciousness and specifically queer cultural consciousness. So the German sexologist Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, for example, refers to him in his writings, and he also comes up a lot in the works of Oscar Wilde. Cool. That's kind of fun that Antinous had this cult popularity in the immediate aftermath of his death and then you know 1500 years later he gets this resurrection of cult popularity i think his cult popularity in the 19th century and the 18th century as well is very strongly influenced by the fact that we just have so many sculptures of him because of his original cult the fact that sculptures of him were done and therefore we have a physical object that can survive thousands of years in the way that a lot of writing for example wouldn't has meant that he could be rediscovered. Yeah, and apparently thirsted over. Those <laughs> sculptures are just too damn hot. <laughs> With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Speaking of Podbean, we recently did a live stream Q&A, and by we I mean Alice, Irene and I. Unfortunately, Eli wasn't available. I'm here too. <laughs> <laughs> 
there is a recording of that and it is up apparently we will link to it in the episode description so if you want to check that out it's pretty cool answers some of the questions we've gotten from patreon and from various other sources and it's kind of like i guess a continuation of our previous q a that we uploaded so if you asked a question for that q a and we never answered it we may have answered it in this one yeah so go have a listen if you want even more queer as fact content you can find us on social media we're on facebook twitter and tumblr as queer as fact you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com and you can find the links to all of those things as well as the address of our PO box on our website which is queerasfact.com. If you want to support Queer as Fact in other ways, you can become a patron. Patrons of our podcast get a chance to vote on episode topics and they also get our monthly Queer as Fact newsletter which lets you know what we're up to when we're not recording Queer as Fact. You also get some free merch and other fun things like that. If you want our merch but you don't want to become a patron, you can also find that on our Redbubble store where we are also Queer as Fact. And if you want to support us in a non-financial way, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or you just love us enough to log on to Apple Podcasts anyway, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. And we might also read your review out on this podcast as Eli is about to do for us right now. Yes. So this review is from It's BB. <laughs> Hello, BB. <laughs> Rainbow emoji from the US. It is five stars and it is titled Learn Lots of Fun Queer Facts to Impress Your Friends and Terrify Your Enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. We've had a lot of great reviews read out on this podcast. That may be the best title mm, that we've had. Mm. The review reads I absolutely love this show. Not only are the stories they tell of our queer past fascinating, but it is told by such funny and lovely people. I love the depth and breadth of material they cover, and it really goes to show that queer people have always been here, everywhere and always, throughout history and time. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I have such a better understanding of our history, and it's so eye-opening to see the depth and variety of queer experiences and how often queer folk found ways to thrive and not just survive. And this one more became a literal god, so that's the <laughs> example, I guess. I find myself referring to this podcast and things I've learned while listening in everyday conversation and try to spread the good word of Queer as Fact everywhere and anywhere I can. For new listeners, I especially recommend listening to episodes about people you've never heard of. Those are some of my favourites. Thank you, Queer as Fact, for all the hard work you do. Aww. Aww. That's really nice. That's I good. get so emotional every time with pretty much all the reviews, but like particularly all the ones I find it quite a common thing where people will say, I'm learning a lot about our history. Mm-hmm. And that's just really sweet. Yeah, it is good. Because like, I think we talk a lot when we read these reviews about feeling like connected to our listeners. And I think that's one of those moments as well, because like we are learning at the same time. Like, like we don't just know this stuff and then we make a podcast about it. Like we have to learn it along with you guys. So it's, it's very good to do that. And I also can't imagine a higher compliment than someone saying that they're like bringing up stuff they learn in conversation with people in their life. That's great. Friends Especially as it's kind of, yeah, implied that they're doing this to like terrify people in dark alleyways <laughs> or something. That's incredible. Can we have another review? Sure. <laughs> I love reviews. <laughs> okay, I'll read this one because it's fitting. Okay. So this one is from Willie J333, who is also from the United States. Everyone's from the United States. <laughs> Most of our listeners are in America. We know that. I think like half. So yeah. really they're like wildly overrepresented in the reviews. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Maybe if you're elsewhere, leave us a review. <laughs> it is titled My New Favorite Podcast and it is five stars. 
They write, I stumbled onto this podcast a few weeks ago while doing research on Pauli Murray and have been listening obsessively ever since. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love the combination of serious historical research and literary slash cultural analysis, and I especially love all the attention to the ancient slash classical world. This nice. one goes out to you. <laughs> We've done two in a row. We've done so two have- in a row on accident. <laughs> The hosts are hilarious and pull no punches about homophobia, misogyny, and racism, which makes for a very satisfying listen. Thank you for making queer history so entertaining. Aww. Thank you. We'll be back on the 15th of August when Jason will be talking to us about the late 14th century Middle English chivalric romance, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.